deep water, did it drown in its own pretentiousness or does it, does it work? All right. Let's see if I can keep this conversation afloat. Um, Brandon, uh, are you? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Plot Devices, episode 24. We're rushing through this fourth wall break. There's a lot of scheduling mishaps on our side, primarily on my side. I apologize deeply to my co-host. We'll get into it in a minute. But if episode 24 is not to your favorites, uh, as SpongeBob once said, 25. 25, Brandon. We're going to get 25 episodes soon. That's ridiculous. My name is Brandon King. I am one of your co-hosts for today, alongside my co-host, Noah Guzman, uh, who is with me in this state of tired paranoia. Noah, how are you today? You know, I'm not... I don't want to state the obvious, so you know what I am today? I am ready to start the week with one of my favorite pastimes that's chatting movies, that's chatting reviews, that's chatting TV with you, Brandon. So as soon as you're ready to get into uh, the recap of what went down last night, I think it was uh, something memorable. Yes, uh, much like the madness of SpongeBob, we had the madness of Oscars. And um, okay, we got some things to get. We are dropping the entire news segment in honor of Oscars. And that is the good thing about, the quote-unquote good thing about this whole scheduling mishap, is that we can do this Monday morning as we're recording this immediately after the Oscars. I'm not sure when you'll hear this episode, but it'll be soon after that as well. But let's hop into it, actually. Uh, the 94th Academy Awards were, as of this recording last night, uh, I watched the full ceremony, Noah watched a bunch of highlights, but we all have the winners in front of us. And we can all stop stressing about award season, at least for another few months or maybe a few weeks. It's a very weird thing with online news cycles. Uh, in big news, Apple TV's Coda took home Best Picture, as well as both other nominations it was for. It took home Best Adapted Screenplay for writer-director Sean Heater, as well as Best Supporting Actor for Troy Kotzer. We're out here in uh, Arizona, so that's going to be a big deal coming forward. Dune was the other big winner of the night, winning six wins of its, I believe, nine nominations. I'm going to double-check that. Uh, the most of any film last night, including Best Visual Effects, Best Cinematography for uh, Greg Frazier, and Best Editing for Joe Walker. That actually screwed up my Oscar pool. We'll get to that in a second as well. Uh, Jane Campion won for Best Director for Power of the Dog. Not surprising a lot of people. With the other acting winners rounding out the bunch as Best Actress for Jessica Chastain for The Eyes of Tammy Faye, Best Supporting Actress for Ariana DeBose for West Side Story, and Best Actor for Will Smith for King Richard. That last one leads into a lot of stuff that happened with the telecast. It was a mess, but we'll get into it. Uh, Noah, I want to get over to you first. We finally have our Oscar winners for this year. How much of it? First of all, did you have some sort of Oscar pool or Oscar betting pool in front of you that uh, we can attest to with that, uh, as I did? And if, even if you did not, what did you think of the overall winners? I just feel like the Oscars to me are something I'm going to check in with, but you know, I, I'm writing into it with the expectation of, Hey, I have a couple um, nominees on my list that I know I want to see uh, take home the award tonight, but understanding that there's still so many other titles out there that I haven't had the chance to explore that I know um, are just like shaking at the opportunity to be recognized. So I feel like um, for, for some of these films, you know, I can speak on it. I can be excited with, with the fans. Um, but for other films, I'm just excited to see um, the, the reactions that are just pouring in from all of the, uh, from pretty much the community who understands the value that that film holds. Um, so I'll speak on that as we cover it, like certain movies. Um, unfortunately, I didn't get to, but uh, for the ones that I can, you know, cheer for, I was, I was so excited about. And yeah, I'm more of a, um, 
you know, kick back on my Sunday and I'm going to check Twitter and Twitter's going to explode with excitement whenever something goes down on that stage. I did tune into some of those moments that I think uh, we're going to be talking about for some time. Uh, yes, I'm talking, we don't talk about Bruno with <laughs> Megan the Stallion, who I just saw a concert the week before, um, as well as a historical moment of what, of an actor assaulting a comedian on the Oscar stage. So uh, we'll get into that. But, um, you know, after you gave us a short recap of some of those um, winners of last night, I will say, damn, like, wow, I'm riding hard for Dune because of all those wins that it was able to garner um, best sound. I was just like, okay, yes, yes. And th- they just kept on coming in and I was just so happy. Um, and then Ariana DeBose, I, I, I was freaking out about that, about that award. I'm, I'm a little, um, you know, the tick, tick, boom fanboy in me is like, Andrew Garfield, I love you. But you know what his, um, he'll have, I'm, I'm sure there'll be plenty of nominations in the future. Yeah. I, I mean, we'll get into the actual you know, telecast and presentation of all this. And I know there's been kind of a narrative floating around of like, oh, it was you know safe. It was unpre- it was you know weirdly safe and also weirdly unpredictable. I yeah, I agree with that. But at the same time, I don't think anyone really won who I was too overwhelmingly furious with. Minus maybe one, but we'll get to it. Um, I think most of the acting categories I was fine with. Uh, I knew Chastain has as big of a shot as any. I was still hoping till the very last minute that Stewart would sneak in there for a win. I really was, but you know she didn't. But like, uh, there's some really cute footage of her on the red carpet that I think is fun. Um, Troy Kotzer won. He deserves all the great things. I did think they were going to go Chloe Smith McPhee. I thought Power of the Dog was really going to overwhelm that kind of thing. Power of the Dog, really enough, only winning one award with Best Director for Jane Campion, which is an interesting thing as well. Uh, Ariana DeBose was wonderful. And actually, her and Kotzer were some of my favorite speeches of the night. Uh, I just thought they were so genuine and love. And there were some actually great speeches overall that I thought so as well. But Ariana DeBose was one of the first, uh, if not the first queer pe- person of color to win an acting nominee. Listening to her speech, uh, I was tuned into some of those speeches and, and Ariana DeBose's, that was one where, um, you're listening and she's even recognizing like Rita Moreno, who is right there, I think, in front of her at the, at the ceremony. And, um, it's so emotional and so I think deserving for all the beauty that I felt when I experienced that film in theaters. Totally. And like Chastain got in there and, you know, I'm happy for that. As far as the production stuff goes, you mentioned Dune. I, in my Oscar pool, underestimated Dune. I should say I got uh, I got 18 out of 24, which is not bad for me, uh, considering everything else. If I hadn't botched That's my- amazing, Brandon. That's great. I mean, to be fair, I'm not going to brag. I won my Oscar pool. Ha ha. <laughs> but at the same time, I completely botched the short film categories. I hadn't, I hadn't seen them, so I couldn't predict anything. And then uh, editing didn't go... T- uh, editing went to Dune. A bunch of other things went to Dune. Uh, and then Coda went for Best Picture over Power of the Dog. So I you know, completely botched that. But you know what? The rest of them, I was totally happy with. You know, visual effects going to Dune. Of course, I'm with you on that. Cinematography, you know, it's funny because when I was predicting the technical categories, I thought, oh, you know, Dune has this overwhelming appeal, but it's going to extend to like the bigger categories. Like it has a shot for picture, maybe it has a shot for screenplay. And the, the uh, production design, that'll go to, you know, Nightmare Alley or Macbeth or like all of those films. And they all got shut out. Like, the love for Dune was more than I expected, and while I am happy for that, I wish there were some more diverse winners in there, I will say that much. Uh, But it's interesting how usually we get a couple of times where it's like, oh, it's multiple wins for this, and here it's only three. It's just Dune, uh, Coda, and Isaac Tammy Faye. 
And, you know, future Brandon, you can edit out the awkward cricket silence, but Brandon, do you remember the last <laughs> Oscars that you felt like there was one title that swept, like dominated? And I'm not talking parasites here. I'm talking, you know, um, because seeing Dune in all these categories, it makes me want to think back to previous award seasons and going, what was the, you know, what was the Dune of that year? It might've been Shape of Water, actually. Shape of Water did really well that year. Wow. Yeah. I, song, I've got to ask you, because, you know, we're most big Encanto fans here. Uh, all the buzz behind it and No Time to Die still wins after two years of hype. What'd you think? I'm not mad about it, Brandon. I think once... Not uh, either. Yeah. Once we... Uh, covered no time to die here on the pod and i think we did hopefully i'm trying to think back i think we did talk about we had to have talked about the song for a little bit but it it was amazing i think that they're setting the record too i was reading a a headline and it said i think they're the first american songwriters to win uh the award for writing a bond theme and um future me can fact check this uh how astounding like i'm a fan of both phineas as an artist and billy eilish as as an individual artist and uh just the the type of the type of understanding the assignment that they did for this new bond film i think no time to die was like my writing inspiration like when i had to sit down and and this came this song released back when probably i was still wrapping up my degree and so like finishing assignments like i could put that on and i could work with it and then approaching the movie it was just so perfect for the title um of course it helps that no time to die was just an amazing uh final bond uh you know bow and so uh, I gotta say, I'm not upset at it. I, I think if there was one thing, if there was one category where I felt like, ooh, um, uh, of course I, I'm a little saddened by the tick, tick, boom thing, but no, I, I was actually, remember, I was rooting for Cyrano for costume design. And so, uh, they kind of got, um, they didn't get shut out because I mean, Cruella has their, has their win here, but, um, that was the one where I was like, darn it, like rats. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll admit I was with you. I remember putting in my Instagram story, just like, I just want Cyrano to win something. Is that so wrong? Uh, how did you feel around the song? Yeah, for me, like, Dos Oruguitas is a beautiful song. I know we're both fans of that song. And I think it might be the best thing from that movie. I liked actually all of the musical numbers. We'll get into that in just a moment. But like, for me, No Time to Die still kind of rules. I love the ambiance of it. I love what Hans Zimmer and Johnny Marr brings to the table. I love what Billy and Phineas lyrically and composition-wise bring to it. It is a great song in the film. And even just hearing it performed live again, I was like, it's the cliche choice, but I have no problem with it. Watching the live telecast and seeing um, a live rendition of We Don't Talk About Bruno, but have it transformed into We're Here to Celebrate Oscars. On what side of the spectrum were you in terms of I'm watching this and I am adoring it or I'm watching this and I'm kind of shriveling up and cringing? As I mentioned, I liked all of the musical numbers. I thought they were all pretty good. Even the Diane Warren number that I'll admit I'm not a huge fan of, but like Reba killed it, I think. Uh, it was a very odd presentation-wise. Um, I know why Mila Kunis was there. Like, I, it was initially a great idea. It just didn't really translate. But, like, yeah, Dos Oquitas was beautiful. No Time to Die was fantastic. Um, Be Alive, which opened the show, I thought was a pretty cool idea. I love the set design of that. And then you have We Don't Talk About Bruno. And I wasn't a fan. I thought it was too much, too late in the show that didn't... That, number one, didn't focus on what makes that song good... And beyond that, just kind of felt like a musical number for the sake of musical numbers in a year where there is plenty of other things that you can do. I remember uh, reading some reactions. There was this idea of like, like, who are the gimmicks and who are the the skits that they're applying to this award ceremony? Who are they targeting with these? Because it felt like the 
the people involved in the film community who are there for that purpose, they're not really the targeted pool for like some of these charades that are going on on stage. Um, I don't know. It just felt so different for the Oscars to be including a bunch of uh, like, if it like was, we're doing this thing over here and then we have this like flare up. And as a, it'd be different if I was watching the actual telegast and who knows how my reaction would have been um, having, you know, uh, spent some time doing that. There was one thing I wanted to mention and that was the returning um, award presenters and how they kind of assembled like reunions of sorts. Um, one specifically is like uh, Samuel Jackson. Picture uh, reunion. Yeah. How how cool was that? And like, what, were there other, were there other reunions that you found yourself like just smiling at because you saw these actors sharing the stage together? I like the Pulp Fiction one because I thought they were leaning into the things about that film that. that and it's funny because I was sitting with two people who hadn't seen Pulp Fiction, and so you know they were. But I was kind of looking at it just like no, like they're going back into it. It's fun. Like they're leaning into the production design with the briefcase and everything. And Uma Thurman, any, any more of her is just fantastic. But I also like the Juno one uh, for no other reason that it's good to see Elliot Page back in front of an audience, like so proud of himself and who he is. But like, you know, JK's dry sense of humor and Jennifer Gardner's always lovely. Like, I like that one. The other ones, I could take it or leave them. But yeah, I think in regards to the telecast overall, yeah, it's a mess. I mean... Like, I did you watch any of the clips of Schumer, Sykes, and uh, Hall hosting? I watched Schumer make a bad joke about "Don't look up." <laughs> saw that. And, and, oh my gosh! I just thought to myself, "Did we need a host?" And remember back when you and I were pitching other hosts for the show? I mean, I did only see uh, clips of Schumer, so I didn't. I can't speak on uh, Sykes or um, Regina. Is it Regina, Regina Hall? Hall? Yeah. I can't speak on uh, Hall or Sykes. So that, that I'm going to lend off to you. You know, what did you think about the other two? And then speak on Schumer as well, because after that one joke, I kind of judged it off the bat. I was like, oh, maybe I'm happy. I, I'm just tuning into the highlights. To their credit, they all tried. They were not not trying. Uh, and I think Sykes walks out the most unscathed. If she came back as a solo host, I wouldn't be opposed. I would want better writing, but like they're, the most laughs I got were from her, and I think she was the most involved in the idea. It still felt patronizing and overly, you know, uh, cliche, but it was working for what she was doing. Regina Hall, God bless her. I love her to death, but, like, she is not a host, at least not in this capacity. And Schumer, minus one or two clever gags. I think there was a really good one. Uh, there was a good dig at, like, Sorkin early on that I thought was really funny. But, like, the Spider-Man joke didn't work. The whole thing with um uh, with Kristen Dunst I didn't think really worked, like, there were a bunch of things that I just didn't think worked. And this is coming as someone who doesn't love Amy Schumer overall. And I'm totally with you. Like in a year where, again, we mentioned the telecast desperately trying to make this condensed tight version that went 40 minutes over, by the way, that's something that not everyone is talking about. They wanted to suit that whole three hours thing. They went a half an hour over. It's a whole nother thing. When we approach award ceremonies like this, why is there still the nature of like our hosts have to be like, critical and like uh patronizing is the wrong word but why do they have to jab at the the artists and like the the big names that are there rather than just focus on the titles themselves like i wish conversations and bits and gags were like, like weren't directed outward like maybe they could be reflected on the host like like i would expect from a stand-up comedian right but instead it's like picking people from the crowd just for the sakes of like call outs and just for the sake of like um it's not even shock, but it's just like, hey, we're all together. Like, so I'm going to, you know, mention the fact that so-and-so is over there. Um, it, it just seems really lame. Like, 
you know, it doesn't really, it doesn't excite me. Like I have to tune in because I have to hear ex celebrity mention other, another ex celebrity's name because ultimately I'm there for the awards and I'm there to, to see, um, nominees that I value and to see them get their recognition. Speaking of recognition, Brandon, did you see Hans Zimmer won? Yes. In his, uh, yes. his PJs in Germany or something like that. Yes. <laughs> as much as I would have loved to have seen that category presented live, even if he wasn't there, at the same time, I love the video that he posted later. And he recognized his performers on the soundtrack. And I'm like, that's super cool of you to use your time for that. Hans Zimmer's side plot is I didn't know he scored The Dark Phoenix. So I actually, I want to go back and listen to that album because <laughs> I have my thoughts about visually what that movie did for me. But audibly, like, I'm willing to give it a second chance because of Zimmer. There's actually, I'll send you this. There's a great video if you haven't watched it from Vanity Fair about him breaking down how he made the Dune score. And there's a moment in it where he and his band are like choosing things from his discography to play. And someone goes, uh, oh, let's do Dark Phoenix. I still can't tell if he wanted to or not. And that's one of the secrets Zimmer will never tell. I did, of course, want to get into the idea. Actually, you know what? Just to really quick build off your point real quick. There's a moment early on in that opening monologue that perfectly, I think, sums it up where it's Sykes, who again, I liked in this but who is basically having the idea of like, oh, you know, I, I went through Power of the Dog like three times. And I was like, first of all, that's not the obvious long movie joke to make. Drive My Car is like, it's longer than Power of the Dog. You're just saying that because of the front runner. But it builds to that idea of patronizing and calling out movies that don't need to be. Don't look up, you can call out. I get that. Being the Ricardo is fair enough. But like, at the same time, like, there is that idea of if you're not Seth MacFarlane, who has like the entire like family guy writing roster behind him, don't try it let the award speak for itself like don't bash on nominees when ultimately what's going to speak volumes is what that card reads and we have that sidebar so being somebody who tuned into the highlights and uh you know i I wasn't sitting through the entire telecast that meant one event like dominated a lot of my feed and that was the altercation between chris rock and will smith brandon do you feel like you we should speak about that on the pod we should just because it's it's taken over every media cycle. Right. Okay. <clears throat> so recap, thing. like I was going to say, like recap for anyone who hasn't, um, <clears throat> for anyone who hasn't tuned in or who is reading about it on their feeds and is like, oh, like I've seen the video, but I don't really know what happened. Um, long story short, uh, Chris Rock was up um, on stage and uh, he was uh, making a very like, very ill joke. Like he was making a joke about um, Will Smith's wife, Jada Pinkett Smith about her hair choice or her, about her hairstyle for the evening. And Jada Pinkett Smith has alopecia. So she can't control the amount of hair that is like, she's able to grow on her head. And so when Chris Rock made a joke about, um, about that, Will Smith very, very quickly um, walks up to the stage and slaps Chris Rock across the face um, on live television. And the whole world is kind of like, what is happening? Like, is this, a, is this another skit? And, and nobody really knows. Um, and then uh, Chris Rock pretty much just announces. It looks like he's in shock, too. He's just like, wow, Will, Will Smith just smacked me across the face on live television. And then Will Smith's walked back to his seat. You know, he's in the front row. He's right there. Um, this is one of the nominees for the best actor category. Um, and eventually the winner. For me, I think, you know, there's been talk of like, oh, should, you know, Smith have to rescind his Oscar? No, because they've given Academy Awards to worse people for more recent bad things than Smith has done. And if anyone was watching that, especially the uncensored footage, you recognize that 
Rock went too far, at least I think. I think he he was trying to, you know, get the crowd going. He was trying to, you know, get a laugh in there. And I get it. That's just the thing of stand-up. But there is a point where you don't do that and you recognize your audience. And I think he went over that line. Uh, a couple other quick things that I wanted to just get across before we move on. Jenny Bevan, who you mentioned earlier, won for Cruella. That was a great, really fun, quirky speech. I love when the costume designers speak because they're always absolute characters. Um, I also liked, oh God, the guy who did Queen of Basketball, who I'm getting his name, Ben Proudfoot, uh, had a really great moment that was cut short because of the telecast. I really liked the speech in that. Kevin Costner actually came out and did the best uh, director intro. It was actually a really profound speech about how the West was won and like the power of the Cinerama Dome and like old school movie theaters that that was really cool. You know, getting into the last two nominations I wanted to quickly talk about. Uh, animated feature, Mitchell's Supposed Machines lost again to Disney and Pixar. And I'm mad about that. And in my heart, they won. And I'm still in a bit of denial. But like, just shout out to the Mitchell's Supposed Machines team. We all love your movie and it deserved to win, frankly. And then last but not least, we haven't talked about it, but Best Picture went Dakota over Power of the Dog, and I lost my Oscar pool because of it. Uh, but at the same time, I am genuinely happy for the Dakota team. I love every time we get to see that cast and Sean Heater and, you know, that whole team just get to have a spotlight for deaf and hard of hearing performers. And this was no exception. I absolutely love what they did for this. And if it is remembered as one of the worst Best Picture uh, nom- winners, I will not be shocked, but I will certainly defend it for a time. And just for, you know, any listener who's coming at this like myself, where we were tuning into the highlights, but not really so tuned into the telecast. Brandon, do you think you could speak on Coda just for a moment and talk to us about what kind of value that film brought to, um, I don't know, the film medium, which, which in your eyes could be why it was awarded? I said this to my Oscar party last night where, you know, someone was questioning why. And I was like, okay. We've been through two and a half years of a global pandemic, social upheaval. We're on the brink of war. Are you really shocked that the Academy went with a feel-good, universal family story over a lot more specific dramas? I'm really not. And beyond just the fact that it, you know, makes sense and, you know, the prediction, the predictors were right. I think it also does speak volumes to the deaf and hard of hearing community. I think this is the culmination of seeing the last few years, whether it's, you know, Sound of Metal or, um, or Eternals or, you know, any of these big projects that are, getting more deaf and hard of hearing performers in there. Troy Kotzer, we didn't mention, is now the second uh, deaf or hard of hearing performer to get an acting win. I think it speaks volumes to the community. I really, really do hope that the Sparks actual change within the systems and allows deaf and hard of hearing performers, yes, to play deaf and hard of hearing people, but to get really diverse and roles that may have not initially been written for them. Because I think that was kind of the point. Like, I went into, you know, Loving Coda as like, this is a very good movie, but is a stepping stone movie to what I hope will be you know, really great performances and really great stories in the future. But I am happy for what it is. And I hope that it sparks the change that people have been saying it will. And Brandon, sorry, we're going to have you stay on the mic because we didn't talk about Chastain. Was there any um, no, notable takeaways from Chastain's speech? Uh, she did take home the Best Actress Award uh, for her performance as Tammy Faye in the eyes of Tammy Faye. Uh, what do you have to include there? And you did write the review for this. Am I correct? I didn't get it published. So I oh. did write it. But I didn't <laughs> Um, but no, I, and actually notable is that, uh, Chastain and the makeup department for Tammy Faye won for both of its, uh, nominations, uh, which is a big deal because Chastain has been really vocal about giving her makeup department the time of day. They, again, were one of the cut categories. We didn't really talk about that, but I didn't care for that at all. But at the same time, uh, it's great to see her get up there. She acknowledged, uh, the party up there. Um, she kind of spoke about Tammy Faye's kindness, which again, I think is the thing that she wanted. And she and Michael Showalter and Andrew Garfield wanted the, mo- wanted people to take away from that movie the most. 
So like, good for her. It's the one that I was one of the least excited to see. I was still really hoping for Penelope Cruz upset at the end. You know, obviously Stewart, but like, very happy for her. And she has been in this game long enough to where like she deserves it. That's basically it. With that being said, we're going to move on real quick into quick hits. This is the portion of the show, or should I say quick hits, uh, because only I will be doing it today because we got to move forward. Uh, this is the part of the show where we run through, uh, in this case, one story real quick. Uh, maybe do some comments on it that we didn't have time for a full discussion. I will begin in three, two. Okay, so for those of you who were around the internet any time this week before the, you know, uh, all the Oscars madness came uh, to the world, you may have seen a certain deleted scene leaked on, uh, or released, I should say, on IGN and a bunch of other geeky media channels. Matt Reeves, of course, from The Batman, released a never-before-seen that was actually shot footage of Robert Pattinson's Batman, and spoiler, if you have not seen The Batman, Barry Keown's Joker, uh, fully in the flesh with the, you know, cut-off makeup and everything. The scene showcases what we assume to be somewhere in the middle of the movie, where Batman is trying to decipher the Riddler's riddles, and Joker is essentially his source inside of Arkham. Needless to say, internet took to it, you know, questions of, do we need Joker already? Does this look good? Is it great? You know, how good is Barry Keown or not? Personally, I think Barry Keown is a fantastic actor. I said in the spoiler review, I don't think we needed him in this. I really appreciated this scene more than I did that actual post-movie tag. And I do hope we get more of him, just not in the sequel. But this was a nice treat for fans to say, like, hey, we're thinking of the character. We're obviously fans of it and time. Well done, Brandon. Well done. Did you feel that the Joker you saw on screen was the Joker you expected after hearing the voice? Yeah, basically. It, it was a little more grungier in the look than I thought. Uh, and he's still, people made the comparison of like, he's definitely doing, you know, a Heath Ledger adjacent accent, which, yeah, he is. But I'm more confident that he, I'm more confident in Bari's ability to make that Joker work than I was with the post tag because that was just, you know, a, a tease. This was an actual scene. Yeah. And it just looked terrifying. Like I looked, I, I felt so unnerved after seeing that because uh, the jokers that we were, I think, used to seeing are just not, they haven't approached a, such a like damaged look. Um, I mean, yes, we see the scars, but it's always just the scars, right? It's never, it's never more than that. And this time it's like, no, the jokers looks like he's kind of been like blended around a couple of times and then asked to be put back together. But no, that was an exciting moment to experience this week. I don't know what you're talking about. Jared Leto literally had damage on his forehead. That means. <laughs> yeah. He had ha ha ha. I don't forget. We got three titles we're discussing for you. Two are wide releases and one is a Hulu release. Uh, a couple weeks back, we talked about Hulu uh, releasing uh, exclusive titles for uh, every year, I believe. Uh, so they want to hit the number something like 10. Um, and here's our one uh, official release for Hulu. We are talking Deep Water. And then we'll be transitioning into the lanes of horror. And, you know, I'll tell you all about Ty West's X. And then we are venturing to The Lost City with Sandra Bullock, finally returning to screen after some time we've been missing her. Uh, Brandon, you want to take it away with Deep Water? Right. So Deep Water, this is uh, Adrian Lyne's uh, next movie. He hasn't been working as a director in about two decades. Actually, his last movie was uh, Unfaithful, which was a fun. Fa this is technically a Disney movie because it's 20th Century Fox. Uh, but his last movie was Disney's last technical erotic thriller with Unfaithful back in 2002, a movie that I admittedly am not familiar with, as well as his filmography as a whole. This was fascinating to me because this is the movie that Ben Affleck and Autodermus met and fell in love with during the pandemic, leading to all those great memes and, you know, great reports kind of thing. Needless to say, it is based off of uh, the Patricia Highsmith novel. It stars Affleck and Autodermus as Vic and Melinda Van Allen. Ben Affleck's character 
is a somewhat retired military developer. Uh, he did some stuff with drone warfare. Now he's just kind of spend his days like uh, taking care of their daughter Trixie and just kind of riding around doing their own thing, going to parties, that kind of thing. Melinda, meanwhile, is also kind of a stay-at-home housewife. They have this kind of weird relationship with one, with one another where Melinda is basically allowed, if not encouraged, to cheat with other dudes, uh, some of which include uh, Dan Mihalk, uh Jacob Alordi, of course, from Euphoria. One day, Vic has essentially had enough of Melinda shenanigans. Uh, she keeps spending money where she doesn't need to. There is a whole altercation with um, a neighbor played by Tracy Letts. And it essentially follows, you know, what will this couple do? They don't want to divorce. They don't want to leave their daughter. But they clearly don't like each other as much as they, you know, as much as they want to. They're obviously still having sex. They're obviously still going places. But there's still this increasingly weird vibe between the two. And what will the explosion of that wind up being? For me, at least, my curiosity for this movie was a lot. It wasn't enough to make me think it was good. I didn't like the trailers all that much. I wasn't familiar with Lyme's work. And I'll tell you this. I don't know what to make of this still. I've been thinking about this for the last few days, and I've been genuinely trying to wrap my head around, like, did I like that? Did I not like it? Is it so bad it's good? I genuinely don't know. Uh, so I want to turn it over to Noah, see if I can get a little bit of insight on it before I actually make my call. Over to you. Uh, Deep Water, did it drown in its own pretentiousness, or does it does it work? All right, let's see if I can keep this conversation afloat. Um, Brandon, uh... are you... I was just immediately going to clown on a movie that I don't need to give airtime to. Okay. So here's my, here's a note that I just uh, typed up real quick. It's like, this felt like an adapted screenplay that wasn't as targeted for me as a viewer uh, to understand how the story was going to go. You know, we have a couple of um, very thrilling moments where we don't understand if Affleck, you know, he has these one-on-one encounters with the, with the, you know, side pieces that um, Melinda is choosing and he's threatening them in the style of, Oh, did you hear about this? So-and-so that went missing a couple weeks back? Yeah. Well, let me tell you, they're not missing. They're dead. I killed them and want to know why they or want to know something else. They were really close to my wife as well. And so he's, he comes off as a threatening partner who is, like borderline psychopathic because he may kill these people, but it's like the story lingers on that. What if kind of question for a while. And, and it's not, it, it's not shy about repeating it and like kind of just copying and pasting it, but switching out who the side piece is, like whether it's uh, like you say, it's one guy or it's the next. Um, so for me, those, those small thrilling encounters were like, okay, like that's what I can attach to. Like, this is a movie that's going to keep me, keep me wondering whether, you know, is Melinda the actual killer or is Vic actually out here killing these men? But then it transitioned to like a family scene where it's a little bit comedic because both, you know, we have the mom and the dad of their adorable daughter. Her name is Trixie. Um, she's played by Grace Jenkins, who I think is, uh, is, uh, an absolute joy to watch like on screen. Um, I like the way that she portrayed uh, this, this daughter in the family because she wasn't forgettable and she mattered to the story. I liked how um, like stern she was on how much she loved dad or how much she was um, like disobedient to her mother. I just thought that, uh, that this child actor did a, did a great job. But that being said, there was a couple comedic moments where both of let's say both of them argue and they're like, Oh, so, well, I don't know about your dad because he's going to read you a bedtime story. And like, you know, they have like these parent back and forth moments that make me go. I thought this was a thriller about like, I thought this was, a, I thought this was a psychological thriller about one of you being a murderer. Like, why am I having these little family comedic moments where all of a sudden, like the tone is shifted and I'm not really 
worried anymore. I'm kind of just like, oh, this is just a normal family comedy. Like, it's just, an, I was still figuring out what this movie wanted to deliver to me because it felt like the movie was moving the most whenever it was Affleck and the Armas alone in a room, because that's where the real conversations happened. And that's where like, we were finally getting somewhere in terms of how their relationship was evolving. And it almost felt like they would take a couple steps forward just to go right back. I think the problem with Deep Water is that it wants to push the bar. Like it wants to be this uninhibited, like super sexy, super like, increasingly violent movie. And it feels weirdly sterile, uh, like just between like the visuals and the pacing. And you're right, like those comedic moments of the family that kind of just make this different movie. It's a bit like, did you see A Simple Favor with Anna Kendrick and Blake Lively? Hey, I kind of liked it, but it was weird. It was a weird movie for sure. But I love it because I think it strikes that balance of what this movie wants to do. Like that movie is sexy and is funny and can and like, quirky. Go, yeah. And, and, and like, can go, it can go into these weird places. And this, I feel like is trying to, and I don't know if it's, you know, Adrian Lyons uh, efforts. I don't know if it's Sam Levinson's efforts who wrote Euphoria, who wrote the screenplay for this, which is a bizarre thing. But at the same time, like, I think there's this weird tonal shift the movie tries to nail. I've seen people describe it as like, oh, reverse lighter Gone Girl, which again, it's Ben Affleck in the thriller. Like, I get it. Um, but at the same time, I don't think that works. I think this is much more a movie about like cycles of bad relationships and the idea of, you know, wanting that. And I think Lime wants to lean into the idea of like, oh, sometimes people want that drama who want that much effort to put into a relationship. And I don't think it quite works. That being said, uh, I do like Affleck and Anadarmus in this quite a bit. Like Anadarmus, as you said, you know, is coming off an incredible hot streak. Uh, she's naturally, she just naturally has that appearance for the camera that just can't take her eyes off her. Like she just has that presence. And Affleck in here is playing this really kind of, I think, tragic undertone to the character who I don't think we get to see him do that often. He's so often, you know, without, whether it's Batman or whether it's other things get kind of propped up as like, look at this leading man. And then we see him in stuff like this or the last duel. And you go like, no, like he can actually be a really good character actor when he wants to be. Um, I think when the movie turns in his direction towards like the second half of the movie, I don't think it works as well. I think Belinda is more of a fascinating character because they kind of like, no spoilers. They kind of play their hand early on with the whole, you know, Oh, did he murder the guy thing? Oh, ha ha. It's jokes, but no, it's maybe not like, they kind of, I think, play that too early. And I think that could go a long way in providing a sense of suspense or a sense of pacing to the movie. Because by the time we get to the end, yeah, like it's exciting, but in a very narrow sense. It definitely, it has that aroma of like, you know, we're just a married couple on the surface. And, you know, there's these little jabs that we throw at each other, but we're really just in love. And I think the scene that I got tired of seeing, because as soon as it happened, it like, it was happening again all of a sudden was whenever there's like, this is a social couple who goes out to these outings and goes to these parties with their friends and all their friends have opinions about what goes on within their relationship. But what really matters is how they communicate their relationship. Well, every time they like were leaving a party, it was the same vibe of Melinda you know, being kind of pulled away from her friend or like her romantic interest for the evening. And uh, Vic kind of feeling like he has to just like, I, I don't know, almost like reel her in and bring her back home. Uh, and then in the car, that's where they have a conversation that that pretty much just goes like, oh, do you really not love me as much as I think? Oh, well, what if I do? And then it's like, a, it's like a, they have sex in the car or they have some form of sex in the car. And I'm just like, okay, got it. Seen it twice. Okay what's next like exactly. and then what happens and then where do we go and we unfortunately we don't 
go far. Even at the film's climax, I found myself still wanting. I think that's a perfect transition to rating, personally. Um, for me, this is a pretty strong 5 out of 10. Not without merit. Again, like I think some of the party scenes and the stuff with the daughter is actually kind of fun. Armas is a absolute, cannot take your eyes off for a performer. Affleck is a good sporting performer in that. But again, like the story isn't quite there. The eroticness nor the thriller of it all is neither really the here nor there. And the actual just pacing and idea of it all is, I think, kind of flaccid. It's something we've seen a lot. It's not something that I think is done particularly well here. Maybe you'll enjoy it if you're looking for something like kind of, you know, in its own graces. And maybe if you are so invested in the Ana de Armas-Ben Affleck relationship, which just isn't a thing anymore, be curious about it. But at the same time, I'm not. How I want to approach the ratings is uh, sometimes it's so hard for me to like give something less than like a five. So this is how I'm going to approach it. If this was a five-star rating, I probably wouldn't give it more than a two. So translating that to a 10... This is a four out of 10 for me. It's so domestic and it's so isolated in what it focuses on that it could be perfect for the right viewer who is just looking for that layered relationship that has a little bit of an eroticism, a little bit of um, threatening aspect. But I'm like, that's not really something I want to romanticize or like, you know, put on uh, in front of me to to watch for entertainment um, unless there was like something drastic. But unfortunately, you know, that's just how it goes. So if you want to check it out, it's streaming now on Hulu. Yeah, much less a movie that tries to sexualize snails. I don't know what Adrian Lyne was thinking. Moving on, Noah, you have a review for a horror movie that is not new. It's been out for about a week and a half or so. Uh, X from T. West, uh, of course, from In the Valley of Violence and a couple other things, who I am not familiar with a lot of his work, but I know the name, obviously. Uh, Brittany Snow, Mia Goth, horror based in like pornographic films. Tell us about it. I got to make sure, because I've been saying Ty West like there's no tomorrow. Hey, apologies to Ty West fans, but here it goes. All right. Well, I shouldn't be apologizing because holy hell, we have, and this is the title of my review. I'll read it for you here. We have the next best slasher, Ty West X marks a new high for horror. And I mean that with all the praise, with all the, with all the, um, what's the word I can use for this? Like all the admiration for being involved in this in this lane of horror for the past couple of years and and like putting it on a pedestal just for myself like elevated horror to me is just so attractive and it's it just it strums the right chords of fear and dread and um entertainment and uh like w- being able to grip an audience from the start and that's that's i think uh, what makes me a fan of horror in Ty West X we are following a production crew um that involves actors of Jenna Ortega, Brittany Snow, Scott Mascuddy, for any of the Kid Cudi fans out there, as well as Mia Goth. So they are traveling. Of course, they're in the 70s and they all hop in a van because they're off to shoot the next best um, adult film flick that is going to get uh, the community riled up and turn them into stars. You know, this is very much the age where um, the American dream exists to just give your life to the, or give your face to the camera and then the stardom awaits you. And so uh, at the top of the film, you get that because we are in a dressing room with Mia Goth. Um, and as she enjoys taking drugs, she just looks at herself in the mirror and just says, she reminds herself and reflects on what her dreams are and what she wants to achieve um, with her efforts as an actor. And so then uh, we transition immediately. We're on the road. We're heading off to this small country, small countryside where we are living on a property. They have a, uh, a boarding house. And this is an elderly couple that owns the property. And um, they're 
sort of welcomed into the house, but not really because um, this this couple is so um, judgmental in how they approach um, some of the uh, expressiveness that comes off of the crew. You know, this is a confident young young crew who knows what they have and they're willing to film it on this set, but they're not letting their hosts know that it's actually a sex film that they're filming. So that does lead to an unforgettable night of terror that I had the pleasure of witnessing on screen. So, and all this in less than two hours. So let me talk to you about the high points of X. Um, for one, Ty West has solidified like his, his, scope in on the genre like this is this is not just a horror film that takes place in the countryside that involves you know the um old people killing killing young people it's like no this is a hilariously graphic film that is so suited in the slasher genre because of the setting because of the like the style in which all of our characters are presented like these are um what would be stereotypical characters in the sense of oh there's like the confident male porn star and then there's the two uh female porn actors uh we have our jenna ortega who plays something like a church mouse church mouse and so you kind of have expectations of what these characters will amount to throughout the film but then ty west he in like most of his projects he takes credit for writing directing and what i learned in researching is he sometimes takes credits as well for editing as well as composing so i was like damn this is a like a jack of all trades like he's able to do it all john carpenter mike flanagan um those are the two that quickly come to mind you know, credit to Ty West's writing, because instead of having these stereotypical characters, uh, another actor who I didn't mention is uh, the producer on the set of this adult film. Um, he takes what would be stereotypical characters and really fleshes them out to be more than just their titles, like more than just their position in the industry. Following a porn crew, I think that we all have expectations of what can be, you know, admired or what can be taken away from actors who uh, find themselves in the porn industry. And then he just turns that on its head. Like you find yourself loving these characters. You find yourself humanizing them because ultimately that's, that's, those are the people who are involved in this industry, humans just like us. And so to look at them and think, you know, only one set of thoughts, Ty West is like, no, here is a deliverance of, you know, beautiful writing and excellent characterization. And, and one person in particular is, if Mia Goth wasn't all across the promotional images, then I would assume either Snow or Ortega were the main character, just because of the type of characterization that they brought to the screen. Uh, more so in Snow's rendition, who I who I was like, yeah, Snow is kind of like a scream queen. Like, I don't know if I, I think Ortega is more in that lane. And then I'm remembering, oh, no, Snow did Would You Rather, you know, that Netflix release or it's on it was on Netflix a couple years back. And then she did Prom Night, which I remember seeing in theaters and actually going, damn. I associate, uh, like many of you, I probably associate Britney Snow with the Pitch Perfect movies, but he, she is such an excellent choice for horror. And I, I hope she, you know, remains in this lane for a while because she, she does very well in it. Um, we are spending a night in this boarding house with the production crew, unknown that the hosts are looming right outside and looking for the next opportunity to take these people out. And I'm not talking in like, don't just kick them off the property. No, this is an older couple. The, the woman has um, dementia. You know, she's she's mentioned as to the forgetting things and she can be absent-minded at times and she kind of just roams around the property and the husband is really who, um, you know, keeps her in line, like kind of collects her back in. And he warns the crew that they, they need to not be like stomping around and upsetting his wife because that can be troublesome for them. <laughs> like it could lead to their death. And so um, the, the older couple, once they once the crew finally falls asleep, that's when they start, you know, 
causing a stir. And it takes one of the crew members coming out of the boarding house and attempting to leave. And they run into the older woman and it's so funny because the way that Ty West directs these graphic scenes, you know, the first kill is it's something like a dance. Like it's something like you're being mesmerized by the moment where we have this closeness and intimacy between something that should be threatening, you know, the older woman who we know is going to be the killer. You know, if you've seen the trailer, if you've kind of been following the teases in this film, you know that something dark is going to happen. And when that first kill goes down, pools of blood take over the screen and it is like i said a very graphic film and that being said they don't really stick to like most slashers like a killer weapon you know sure there's a pitchfork in one of the trailers but the older woman just uses that for one of the kills and if i and i would be lying if i said that she's the main threat in the movie because there are other things looming in the forest that surrounds them or in the swamp that surrounds them that really tap into some personal fears that don't always um relate to like this older woman carrying a pitchfork you know, I didn't reveal it on my review, but I will say there is a crocodile scene and oh my gosh, crocodiles and alligators. These are apex predators, y'all. And they terrify the living hell out of me. My friends asked me if I want to visit Florida and I'm like, yeah, like let's not talk about Florida right now. Also, there's alligators there, not to mention prejudice and, you know, homophobia. Um, so, um, so the focus after the half point, just for any person who is still, um, checking out, uh, X in theaters, be ready for the second half to be like, those those creative death scenes and those those like cricket silence moments where you're just actually focused in on the killers themselves like the older couple they have a they have a a they are captured in a unique way because we see intimate moments from them more than from the young crew and i think that in a in a slasher horror we're always expecting to see oh there's a sex scene here and there yeah there are sex scenes but it's funny because they're literal sex scenes for the adult film there's no sex scenes involving um just the actors straight out like outside of their work but when we transition to the older couple we focus on the killers it's it's so funny because yeah you're unsettled as you watch them kind of look at each other and you sexualize one another, you know, at the, at the request of one of them and being like, let me just say watching it. I found myself a little bit like, Ooh, this is new. Like I haven't seen this. So if you're ready for that kind of shock, I think this is the movie for you to wrap it up. Ty West. Yes. is a familiar name in horror for those who watch like the sacrament or the house of the devil. Um, I mentioned that he takes many credits outside of just directing his projects here in X it's unforgettable. It is a night of terror. Um, it is from a 24 and it is receiving ridiculous praise. So if you want to be part of that conversation, if you want to be, um, part in one of, I think the best horrors of the year, then I think this is one that is definitely worth your watch. Um, it released in theaters a couple weeks back. So you still have a chance to see it on the big screen. I'm unaware of any, um, streaming options in the future, but as soon as that is announced, I will be sharing it here for you. Uh, but this is stylistic filmmaking approaches. You know, you have a cast that is just amazing all around kid Cuddy. I didn't speak on too hard or Ortega, but both of them just understood the assignment. Mia Goth as well. We have some uh, additional projects in store with Ty West from Mia Goth that uh, we'll tease and maybe I'll post about on social media um, and a score that's going to unease your nerves. So for me, this movie was, if I had to give a five-star rating, I'd very easily give it a four. And so that puts this on an eight out of 10. And I think that that's a high for my horror. Um, four and a half. I think this is actually better than what I'm making it. This is probably closer to eight and a half out of 10. So I would give it that. Now you and I can jump back into our hosting seats and talk The Lost City. This is the recent release starring uh, Sandra Bullock, Channing Tatum, and who we thought was going to star in it for longer, Brad Pitt. 
I mean, if you watch the trailer, it seems like a bit of a bit part, but you're right. This movie needs more Brad Pitt. Uh, this is the newest project or directorial debut. I'm still not entirely certain. I need to look it up later. From Aaron and Adam Mee, who for a long time, I don't know if they still are, they were attached to do a He-Man movie. Uh, I don't know if they're still going to be doing that, but this is, I think, their at least major studio debut. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, starring Sandra Bullock, Channing Tatum. Sandra Bullock stars as Loretta Sage, who is still in mourning at the death of her husband, who was an archaeologist who influenced a lot of her work. She was a pretty significant collegiate academic writer. She then moved into romance novels and it totally exploded in popularity, including her uh, cover model, uh, Alan Capperson, a.k.a. the stunning Fabio-esque Dash McMahon, who, you know, is who is absolutely the star of the books. There's a scene early on with uh, Bowen Yang from Saturday Night Live that kind of establishes their reprieve with one another. Uh, Alan really, really likes Loretta, really likes Loretta. Um, Loretta, not so much. She's still kind of in her own world. Eventually, we get into a character named Abigail Fairfax, played by Harry Potter himself, Daniel Radcliffe. He is a multi-billionaire, like one of the biggest media moguls on the planet. He was researching Loretta's late husband's work, uh, which, again, influenced her work, about the city called the Lost City of the D. Uh, there's a longer term for the tribe they kind of make joke about in the movie, whatever. Uh, needless to say, it is a mysterious city that vanished off the coast of the Atlantic many, many years ago. He has found it. He's looking for the Tomb of the Ruler, which has the Crown of Fire, which is this gorgeous, like, ruby crown that helps make him rich beyond his wildest dreams, even though he's already fruitfully rich, uh, but that will give him glory beyond glory for some probably familial issues. We'll get into it. Needless to say, uh, Loretta goes to the island. Uh, Alan follows her there, along with Loretta's publicist, uh, Beth, played by Divine Joy Randolph from from uh, Dull Mind is My Name. And the whole movie just turns into, you know, Romancing the Stone, George of the Jungle, a lot of like, you know, jungle island exploration movies that you've seen before, but with a, you know, Sandra Bullock, Channing Tatum twist to it that I found really charming, but I want to turn over to Noah for a second. Uh, this movie was getting a fair amount of publicity, uh, again, just for the idea of, you know, oh, it's Sandra Bullock back in theaters. Isn't that exciting? What did you initially find out about this? Brandon, when I first signed up for this movie, I think I was just attached to a trailer that, for one, had Sandra Bullock attached because, like I said before, I've missed her and I don't feel like I've seen her recently. Um, and so when, and I think that she does like comedic action, like just so well. And so when I signed up for this, I thought that I was going to be getting like some sort of like rescue movie that involved uh brad pitt as like the, the the veteran assassin and then you have channing tatum as kind of like the himbo like sidekick and sandra bullock is the 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 capture person who is um trying to outsmart her captor and uh i was just, i was ready for that and then as soon as the movie started we have like this whole publicist realm of like hey you have to do these meet and greets hey you have to do these uh, press tours and very much after coming off of marry me i was immediately just reminded of like all of marry me's moments where it was uh, um j-lo and that's not her name in the movie of course but it was j-lo and her publicist just talking about like all the different media opportunities that they booked and so this movie started out feeling like that and i was like oh okay like okay like i'm ready for this like ready to be in that in that behind the scenes of a celebrity's life and then before we even hit like the, the 10, 15 minute mark, Sandra Bullock's captured. Uh, Loretta is captured by um, Abigail Fairfax and asked to decipher. And her late husband would study 
ancient civilizations, like excavations, like very much in that space. So she is writing about a world that she is familiar with. So when this movie, you know, the rescue scene happens very early on in the movie and it's pretty done, it's done with fairly quickly. You know, Brad Pitt is utilized as uh, a character named Jack Trainer, who is an ex-military, like um, they, he, hey, he trains people <laughs> and that's kind of a bit in the he movie. He is indeed a Jack Trainer. <laughs> yeah, he is a Jack Trainer. And uh, before you know it, uh, Loretta is rescued and now she finds herself in the jungle with no phone, like no communications, no transportation, not even the right pair of shoes, but uh, stuck there with Alan, her cover book model, um, who in the beginning believes himself to actually be a, a, a person straight out of Loretta's novels, but eventually like reveals layers to himself that gets us to appreciate him as an individual, not just as like a side character, as a hot side character, because he is hot. And then what I didn't expect out of this movie was what you said, Brandon, like the, the whole um, romancing the stone, like some of your references uh, immediately sat right with me because that's the way this movie feels like it's immediately, it's very immediately an adventure, an adventure movie that works in like some mythology, uh, some, some lore for the, for the civilization that they're exploring. And I found myself really enjoying that, but not at all what I expected. Yeah, I think the most beneath the surface this movie gets is the actual mythology behind the ruler of the tribe uh, of the city of D. Like, th- there is something in towards the third act where I thought, like, oh, that's kind of profound. Like, that's kind of a nice idea, you know, if you're going with that. Um, there, there's obviously a couple of references to Fairfax, you know, being a jackass who just, you know, wants to colonize places just for the sake of neo-colonization. Um, those are fine. I'll admit the first 15 minutes, 20 minutes... I wasn't finding this really good at all. I found it more of like a kind of low-key drama about an author who was really in the midst of guilt, just trying to get out of it. And I was like, isn't this supposed to be a comedy? And then Patty Harrison's character shows up as a social media manager making jokes about hashtag Sean Mendes. And I was like, please tell me this is not this movie. Uh, luckily, it's not. Uh, it's actually quite funny. I actually really like the back and forth between Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum. I think they have really fun chemistry. Uh, Channing Tatum, of course, leaning into the himboness of him all, but like doing it in a really cool way. Uh, and again, like Sandra Bullock's kind of, you know, the more stuck up of the two. She's much more determined, more organized. And once, you know, Brad Pitt briefly, albeit greatly, enters the equation, it forms this really cool triad of characters that is really fun to follow around. Daniel Radcliffe, though, is awesome in this. I want to see him play more villains. He kind of tried it now you see me too, but I think this is a much more uh in concrete version of this, uh, especially just between, you know, the madness and the kind of, you know, Oedipus complex that he kind of, you know, goes along with towards the end of the movie. Um again, like it's fun, it's exciting. It, will I say it's good? I don't know about that. It it's weirdly paced. The writing doesn't quite work. Uh the stuff with Loretta's husband is interesting, but it only matters to the plot up until it needs it. Uh, so, like, it's fun to watch these actors do their thing. Uh, Divide Joy Randolph as well. I didn't bring her up, but she's fantastic in this. Uh, want to see more things. But, like, it's exciting. It's fun. I certainly had a time with it, but I don't know if I can call it good. Brandon, I'm right with her with you in terms of, like, I didn't expect mucked out of the comedy. And then me, I brought my 15-year-old sister, and we both uh, watched uh, we watched it together over the weekend. And we were laughing hard like this movie is really hilarious um without being like just strictly like for adults like it was really an enjoyable time just to watch these two characters kind of fumble around each other and avoid awkwardnesses that exist when you're when you're doing the jungle thing which is like we travel through a river and all of a sudden there's leeches all across your body and i have to check i have to check them out everywhere so that i can remove them that scene was hilarious um you have uh alan's character who yeah is like this big 
tough, strong guy. But as soon as he steps into water, his back breaks out in eczema. And that's like, it's just a funny uh, addition to the character. And then we have the night scenes where it's like, oh, are we going to sleep next to the fire? Are we going to share the, the hammock? Ooh, are we going to sleep butt to butt? Like it's the dance little, scene. The dance scene that, so eventually they like, not this isn't too much of a spoiler, but but through their adventures, they find like a small community where they're able to um, take refuge and take a shower and change. Sandra Bullock can finally get out of that like unitard she stays in for the first half of the movie, which is like a sequence like jumpsuit that it looks comfortable in areas, uncomfortable in others. Um, but that scene, actually, Brandon, I found myself very endeared, like to see them dance and like to see more from Loretta's character other than just like this, this hardened writer who is kind of sick of the the work that she's been working on. She wants to transition out of it. Like once we get to that scene, I think I saw more out of the characters and this finally felt like a deeper movie other than just like, you know, um, jab here and there and Loretta being like a hard ass the entire time. Like she finally, I think, let up and we were able to see more of the adventure sidekick side from them too, which I think, like you said, they, they did have great chemistry and I would even be down for another. Abigail Fairfax, you know, Radcliffe's character, he was giving me like the uncharted enemy that I wanted. Like he was yes. maniacal, he was goofy and he was like absurd, but believable. Like I was still right there with him and like completely involved in his insanity. Um, and like you said, Divine Joy Randolph, uh, she's kind of like the B plot. She's the publicist who wants to rescue her, her writer. <laughs> and so she hops on a plane, hops on a cargo plane, you know, uh, begs these boatmen to, to take her to the friend. And like, she is a force of her own who's willing to get things done. And finally, when all those, uh, threads come together, I found myself just still sitting there with a smile on my face because after watching this, I was like, I need to go rewatch the mummy because I just love this genre and I, I want more from it so bad. Yeah. I think we'll move on to ratings from there. Uh, for me, this is about a pretty solid six out of 10. Like, again, I had fun with it. I enjoyed the comedy for the most part. I think it, again, like the actual climax of it does get this kind of rollicking, really light Indiana Jones aesthetic to it. Again, Uncharted, like you mentioned, like there are better movies in this vein, let alone in this kind of comedy vein. But like, I think Bullock and Tatum, I would love to see them do more things in the future. I do think they have really fun chemistry with this kind of like timeless star quality, but also these very specific kind of things, like the eczema thing that you mentioned. Again, like sporting cast are fun. The jokes are there. And it is a, I've heard this mentioned as like the perfect date movie for quarantine. I'm like, yeah, I think it kind of is. I think we totally take like a significant other or like you said, like a younger sibling and just have like a fun, quick hour and a half, hour, 40 minute time. I don't think you need to pay too much attention to it. But again, I think that kind of plays into the downfall as well. This will not stand out to me over the end of the new year, but you know what? It's fun for what it is. You're so right on the nose, Brandon. Yeah, this is a good time. Uh, there's one scene in particular that I thought was hilarious because they take out a motorist and then feel so much I was going to bring that up. They feel so much guilt over the fact that they might have just caused two people to die who were actually trying to kill them. And just little instances like that make me adore this movie for what it is. And it doesn't take itself too seriously. And I'm willing to sit there and just enjoy whatever kind of shenanigans that go on. And Sandra Bullock and shenanigans, they go hand in hand. So I'm giving this movie uh, a good seven out of 10. I thought that this is worth your time. Um, if you can make it to theaters um, where accessible, then uh, yeah, like Brandon says, date movie, sibling movie, solo movie, you're going to end up smiling throughout and you're going to leave the theater just going, damn, like I had a good laugh and that was a good time. And that'll do it for episode 24 of Plot Devices. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to whatever again this is. Once again, uh, if you like us, if you want to follow us more, give us a follow on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on our RSS feed, at Plot Devices. It's, again, wherever your podcasts are. 
Go find us there. We have new episodes usually every week, including something else in the midst that we'll be talking about very, very soon. Uh, while you're at it, please follow us on Plot Devices Pod on Twitter and Instagram. That's Plot Devices Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And follow our individual stuff, including my co-host, Noah Guzman, who has a review app for X, among other things. Where can people find that and all the other things you got going on in your life? Yes, thank you so much, Brandon. I have an X review out now on the Odyssey Online. Uh, if you search up the Odyssey Online, you can find me as a creator at Marcos Noah Guzman. And if you'd like to give me a follow, I uh, talk about a lot of things, but movies are one of them on Twitter at Noah's Plotting. Um, and n- next thing I got going on, Brandon, I mean, there are just there's so much content for me to catch up on in uh, the movie space, but I'm actually also involved in a musical production of uh, gentleman's guide to love and murder. So outside of the pod, outside of my job, you know, I am uh, a stage actor for a musical and I can't wait to see how that goes. Cause that will be uh, going down in this next month. Um, so maybe, you know, a little bit light on the news review side or I'm sorry, movie review side for me, um, but still definitely involved in the entertainment space. Always. Can people buy tickets for that? Yes, and you can reserve tickets because they are actually free. So if you reserve a spot, it's yours. As you should. Uh, you guys can follow me if you're so interested at the Movie King 45. That's at the Movie King 45 on Twitter and Instagram. Follow my uh, articles for ASU Odyssey as well. I'm having one coming up for this week. I don't know. I need to figure out my screener schedule, but it will be for something. Uh, I don't want to say which, but it'll, it'll be something big. Uh, you can also, if you want like a good laugh, I was just on No Capes Required recently talking about Oscar predictions. Uh, so if you want a good laugh about how wrong or right we are, go check that out and go follow the show as well. Sky Meredith does great work over that as well. And uh, yeah, once again, plot to I. And once again, Plot Devices Pod, Twitter and Instagram, and uh, Spotify and Apple Podcast. Follow us there, and thank you guys so much, for the sp- so much for the support. While we, damn it, and thank you guys so much for the support for uh, Plot Devices for myself for Noah Guzman. This has been Plot Devices, and we'll catch you guys next time. Oh, sorry, I just had to mention one more thing, Brandon. Yeah, go. Brandon also has a review um, out right now for Odyssey. His One of his latest reviews is the review for the Batman film. So if you haven't given that a read, um, I highly encourage it. It is an excellent review where he taps into not only um, Matt Reeves' work, but also um, draws in some notes from uh, the like works within the last decade that speak to Pattinson's character um, and the like. So definitely go check it out. That is That review is doing excellent on Odyssey, by the way. And um, we have a mini-sode out that covers all spoilers and all details surrounding the Batman that I think is worth a listen. It's a shorter conversation between ourselves um, and two guests that we invited onto the pod, and that is up now. So if you're looking for a shorter episode or if looking for more Batman talk, you can definitely check that one. Absolutely. And thank you guys so much for reading the review. It actually is really cool to see those numbers. And again, check out the mini so We have a ton of fun with that as well. You guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King 45. That's Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King 45. Follow my band at Cablebox underscore music on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can also, again, follow my work at ASU Odyssey, Batman, among other things. I'll have another review out this week. I'm just not sure which. Uh, follow my guest appearances at No Capes Required uh, from Sky Meredith's podcast, who is on our Batman spoiler review. If you want a good laugh, we just did a predicting the Oscars type thing. It's a little bit outdated now, but maybe you'll have fun with it as well. And once again, Bot Devices Pod, Twitter, Instagram, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and RSS feed. For myself, for Noah Guzman, this has been Plot Devices, and we'll catch you guys next time. And now we are going to go ahead and transition to our multiverse of television. What streaming river am I going down? Channing Tatum, are you behind me? Um, we are going to talk new releases on the HBO platform as well as Paramount Plus saw its new series in Halo. Um, but before we venture into the out, into the outer rings and exploring Halo and Master Chief, we are going to keep it, um, 
relatively, you know, local. We're going to be talking DMZ. This series comes from Ava DuVernay, starring Rosario Dawson. Uh, Brandon, can you provide us a summary for that new HBO Max series? Yeah, this is a new four-part HBO miniseries on uh, HBO Max. Uh, it's created by Robert uh, Roberto Patino, who I'll admit I was not familiar with his work prior to. He's worked on Sons of Anarchy, uh, a couple other things. Um, most notably, though, executive produced and the pilot is directed by Selma, A Wrinkle in Time, many, many amazing things, Ava DuVernay. Uh, it's also the other episode directed by uh, Ernest Dickerson, who another guy we'll get into uh, briefly on the show. Uh, based on the graphic Vertigo novel from uh, Brian Wood and Ricardo Bercielli, it stars, it stars the aforementioned Rosario Dawson as Alma Ortega. He, she is a medic who... Okay, let's get into the actual backstory of the show. So we're in New York, and it is essentially an American demilitarized zone, which if you don't know your history, there's one currently in Korea right now, between North and South Korea, essentially a neutral slash ceasefire zone between two warring factions. In this case, it is in a dystopian future where there is a second American civil war between the actual United States of America, and I believe it's the Free States of America is the one on the uh, western side of the U.S. We should specify we're reviewing on the first two episodes. They haven't really specified a lot of the details yet. In the comics, at least, it's that, um, the like I said, the Manhattan zone is essentially the DMZ zone between the two warring factions. A lot of people have died, a lot of violence across the country, and now the DMZ has kind of become this weird mix of the two cultures, but also this kind of uh, secessionist group. Anyways, we find Rosario Dawson's character, Alma, uh, on evacuation day, which was many years ago, she lost her son in the evacuation. She spent eight years between both countries trying to find him. Now she knows he's in the DMZ. She's trying to go find him and essentially comes into contact between these two, uh, these two wannabe, three eventually wannabe leaders of the DMZ. We have uh, Hun Li as Wilson Lin, who is the leader of kind of the Chinatown Bureau. Uh, she, they were somewhat involved before the war. We don't know if it's romantically evolved, but they were friends at some point. She, he helps her out a lot as well as uh, Benjamin Bratt as Parco, who is the leader of the Spanish Bureau of uh, Manhattan, uh, and also somewhat related to uh, Alma's lost son, who we do see in the show very early on. And the show is essentially about the, it's essentially a political drama in how you run the DMZ and if it can at all be run, and of course, Alma's journey to find her lost son. Noah, over to you. I'm assuming, and forgive me my assumption, that you haven't read the graphic novel because I was not familiar with it at all. Um, and I did bring the series up to you, you know, post-DC fandom when all these other projects were coming out. Ava DuVernay's still at DC. Isn't that, that fantastic? Does this series, at least the first half, really stick to you, or is it more dull than you think? So far, DMZ has, I think, impressed me in terms of what I expected from this uh, DC project that wasn't, I mean... Th- from what we've seen, this isn't, this is, yes, based on a DC graphic novel, but we're kind of steering clear of any kind of superhero mention um, and venturing more into like the lawless territory that reminds me of um, apocalyptic scenarios. And I think that's what's going down here is in the DMZ, the, the demilitar- demilitarized zone, um, our character Alma is navigating in between what feels like sanctuaries, like that I'm reminded from like in The Walking Dead, where the most threatening it feels um, atmospherically is just when she's traveling to and from uh, what we would call safe spaces. And so, you know, everybody on the outside of the DMZ has these 
ideas of how life operates inside that zone. Well, it's not until Alma visits it that we realize that there's actually community that's being fostered here. And there's actual like connections that are still remaining that feel and are human. You know, this isn't just completely no man's land. There are sections that are, you know, we have teases of a cannibalistic society. And I think that um, that's probably going to show up maybe uh, later in the future episodes after just watching the first two. Um, but so far, Brandon, yeah, it feels like a political drama because um, very early on, we we know that, you know, part of the main story with Alma is going to be finding her son. Well, she believes that he's she believes that he's been killed um, and then is quickly like whiplashed into the truth, which is like he's still around, but he isn't the son that you left behind. And so kind of that relationship is what we're grounded with. And then also warring parties of who is going to dominate this land and who is going to be our leader. That's a role that I love to see Benjamin Bratton because he carries himself with so much confidence, so much like they, they call him a G in the series. And he really is like, he just looks old school, cool. And uh, it's great to see him in a, in a HBO max series, but um, you know, top line comments from me are, it's a, it's, it's not as, it's not as th- thrilling as I was expecting. Like I was expecting the, the chase scenes in between, um, you know, what you would call, uh, the DMZ and the, you know, the greater New York area. I was expecting that to be the bulk of the series, but no, she gets in pretty quickly. And the bulk of the series is really focused on what, which relationships are going to matter most and which one's going to bring you up on the political scale in the DMZ. And that's, that's unexpected, but I'm, I'm here for it, you know. Yeah, just to quickly clarify, uh, Ernest Dickerson, you might know him for his long-term collaboration with Spike Lee. He's cinema- he's been a cinematographer for a lot of his movies. He's worked on TV for a long time. So just want to point that out. Uh, I find this interesting that Ava DuVernay tackled this as a project because when we talked about I Will Follow, there was a recurring idea about, yes, parents and children, but also mothers and children and that kind of weird, complicated love between mothers and their children when they grow up versus when they're kids. And I think that aspect of this source material and apparently this is slightly more specific than source material uh, apparently the graphic novel is much more like world war z where it's kind of a generalized history and you have characters within so this is kind of an interesting take i don't love it so far but i appreciate what it's going for specifically because again apparently the graphic novel was based very much in kind of bush era you know post 9-11 paranoia and you can kind of tell with the way they're setting up the world it's still very modernized but you can tell it feels very of its time. And that's, I think, a credit to the graphic novel, but I think it kind of diminishes some of the value of like a classic TV show, so to speak. That being said, I like the three performers, the three main performers, I should say quite a bit. Uh, Rosario Dawson is almost never bad in my eyes. Um, she's quite good in this. She has, I think, a really great scene towards the end of episode one where the whole situation kind of turns on her. And I was really impressed by what she's able to do with that. Uh, and then eventually her reunion with her son, which I think is really poignant as well. Hoon Lee, who I had never heard of, uh, is really good in this. I like a lot of what he has to deliver here. I like sort of the weird back and forth that he has uh, with Alma. And then you mentioned Ben Brad, who is an actor who I'm woefully unfamiliar with. I know he's been around for a long time. I just haven't delved into a lot of his projects. He's so charismatic in this. Like, he is just owning every... And I've heard people sing, sing a lot for phrases of this. And he kind of is. Like, he is that, you know, I don't want to say Donald Trumpian figure, but he is that same kind of figure to really rile people up in a primal sense of enjoyment and necessity that I think you need from a politician like that, especially in this space. So like, as far as the three of them go, I don't really have a ton of notes. Discussing this with my partner, we had both actually uh, watched this, this first half together and she was making comments around, you know, uh, around a believability. Like if we are looking at um, 
political comparisons and seeing who can lead a community that has already been kind of abandoned by major society for years now. Um, why would they look to this, uh, you know, this nurse that kind of interrupted their day to day and is now trying, like she's, she's, she is disrupting the power um, that exists there currently, but to look to her as a leader just feels a little bit like um, cliche or just unexpected for what uh the community would be prepared for. So I think that, yes, there, I can definitely see that when I'm watching it, where I'm kind of like, well, kind of, who is she? Like she comes in and I, I know that she's trying to rescue her son. So we're with her on that. But as soon as she starts to lead, I have questions of, you know, what is she fighting for here? And, um, you know, I just, I don't feel that she's fitting the space yet in order for her to act as a leader, but maybe the second half of the series will solidify that or like show us what her role in the DMZ will be. How will she impact it on the greater scale? Um, hour long episodes. And it definitely feels like that. Um, I think that uh, I'm still getting used to its pace, but yeah, it's, it's got these deep moments between Alma and her son. Uh, and that relationship kind of has to change before I remain interested in it. How did you feel seeing their reunion that happens, you know, in episode two? It's a bold choice for your first episode to go, here is the main crux of the story, okay? Now, here it is solved. Like, for all intents and purposes, it's, you know, done. So what do you do with your remaining three hours of content? And what they wind up doing with it is, I think, interesting. But on the same end, I have... Okay, did this feel at all like a video game to you? Oh, I forgot to mention. Thank you, Brandon. Yes, for any fans of or any people who are, like, eagerly awaiting the new HBO Max series for The Last of Us, you know, the video game adaptation... The settings that you're seeing here are kind of teasing us for what we can expect from like an abandoned metropolitan area. So that's what feels very video gamey to me is like um, if any fans of the division video games like this feels like that type of war zone just um, but slowed down because, of course, Alma is a is a uh, she's a medic. She isn't a or she's a doctor. She's not, a, you know, a combat competition. You know, that was, I think, my biggest negative about the show is that especially in the pilot and again, Ava can do no wrong in my eyes, but I think in terms of writing purposes, I don't know about you, but it kind of felt like that thing of like, okay, you are here. Here's the tour guide. You have to do this, this, and this by this point. And then she goes and does the thing. And then she meets up with Wilson's character. Well, you need to do this, but you need to convince this person. Okay. I guess I'm going there. And it feels like video game plotting in the same way that like 1917 was, but way more blatant. Like you can make the argument for that, but this feels like, it was either meant to be a video game or they were just taking influence from that sense of dialogue. And I, I don't think it works for this. I think you hit the nail on the head by it with that comparison of like, Hey, complete this task, but before you complete this task, you've got to make sure we're good over there. And then you got to travel over there. And we have no sense of like how she's getting in between these places so fast. <laughs> she's kind exactly. of jump. She's kind of hopping. Um, and that's like, like Manhattan's not huge, but there's no subway systems. I'm just saying I'm waiting for cannibals. And I think that's what, what's going to keep me, you know, ear, ears perked on this series, but I'm it, so far. Yeah. It's a, it's an okay watch. You know, I'm not, I don't find myself entirely thrilled, but um, I'm remaining interested. There, there is also the other thing that I wanted to raise that, you know, I don't know about you, but the world building does not feel fleshed out yet. Like it feels like that thing of like, yes, the outside world abandoned us. Yes. There are these two factions, but we never really get insight. Like, there is a national civil war and like New York is your DMZ. Like that's a fascinating concept. And we're really diving into the aesthetics and the interior policing of the DMZ. We really have no representation outside of the DMZ. And I would have liked a story about that. Just like, oh, like, what's this one nurse doing? Like, is she an ally? Like, is that kind of thing? Is there like a bomb threat going into the DMZ? Like, it feels like there should be more stakes here than there actually is. 
even though I respect the idea of like going more intimate. That's very true. The series starts off with Alma um, providing medical aid to somebody who was caught in like the border of what was the, the D the zone of the DMZ. And then what was, um, you know, I guess belonging to the nation. And so very immediately after she's already entering the DMZ. So we, you're right. We don't have a sense of how the world is looking at this area or what their plan of action is because as threatening as it is inside the DMZ, like who knows how threatening the outside world is because then that would be a threat that they can all gather up and fight against, um, which feels like, which is why they want to, I don't want to say unionize, but that's why they want to establish a community so that they can become a free state um, and rival the nation. But I'm like, is that really going to happen? Like, how can this go out? How can this go about? Right. And then there's a third figure in uh, played by Saturday Night Live's uh, Nora Dunn, who provides like a very interesting, much more populous contrast that I, we don't want to spoil because, again, she comes sort of in the second part. But if you've watched it, I think she's a fascinating character and I cannot wait to see what they do with her. Please don't kill her off. And the entire four-part uh, DMZ miniseries is streaming on HBO Max. Uh, you can check it out there if you are so interested. And we will probably get to the second half at some point. We're going to put it on catch-up and we'll get to it as soon as we can. Just sorry, time is of the issue on the series. We are going to hop into our next TV series for today. Probably the one that many of you are most intrigued, maybe not excited, but intrigued about Halo the series, uh, Paramount Plus's, you know, cash baby that they've been trying to get up and running for years now. Steven Spielberg is an executive producer. Peter Jackson was attached to one point. He is not anymore. And Pablo Schreiber from 13 Hours and I think Game of Thrones and a bunch of other things, I'll look it up, has been attached to, has been attached as Master Chief. Noah, considering you are the two of, one of the two of us who has most experience with the game, please tell the people what Halo the series provides that might be different from the games. So we're discussing Halo, uh, the new Paramount Plus series. So I think one of the biggest iconographies from Halo is going to be uh, that green Spartan. You know, his name is Master Chief. He is the uh, primary character. He's who you play as in the majority of the Halo video games, unless you're playing some titles like Halo Reach that explore like, you know, the the time before uh, Master Chief or leading up to that. Um, but for the most part, he's going to be the player um, that, sorry, he's going to be the character players associate themselves with when they're playing the game. So when we're jumping into a Halo series, the immediate question is, oh, is this just going to be a story about Master Chief? And I think that that is um, what fans are getting here, you know, to give you just the lay of the land and what's going on in the Halo series. Uh, this is 20th, 26th century, um, and humans are facing an alien threat known as the Covenant. Um, that's really all you need to know surrounding the Covenant. Yes, they are big and scary. Uh, yes, this series uh, is not scared to show some blood. What's important to know about the series is humanity's kind of like last hope, you know, their fighting chance against the alien threat um, is heavily placed on the UNSC. The UNSC stands for the United Nations Space Command. Um, it is a fictional kind of like uh, military faction that is all about fighting the Covenant. Uh, they are out there in space and they have one doctor named Dr. Halsey. And Dr. Halsey heads the Spartan program. And the Spartans are like the warriors of the UNSC. They are genetically enhanced uh, humans who from a young age were like, it's, it's tragic because they were stripped from their parents and then they were genetically modified to be these like super soldiers um, and then fitted with armor so that they can be fighters up against the covenant. Jumping into the story, we only have one episode out right now on Paramount Plus at the time of reviewing, and we are following a like a rebel outpost. These people are neither with the UNSC nor with the Covenant, um, and they are invaded by a Covenant force that 
just starts mauling them down before we see a team of Spartans um, intercept. And we get a pretty lengthy action sequence on, off of episode one, just showing us what the Spartans role is in the, like in the greater space area or what they can serve to humanity and what, and how threatening the covenant are. And immediately we're facing a, like, I don't want to say a conspiracy, but like a threat against the Spartans. Um, so it's, it's clearly established that the Spartans, though they are fighting with the UNSC, they kind of operate under Dr. Halsey. So they're like in their own jurisdiction. So that's going to come into like some pretty interesting uh, situations and scenarios. Um, I'm a fan of the video game. I thought that this took so much from the video game in terms of um, how to impress the fans regarding costuming. Like I'm looking at the the Spartans armor, what they're outfitted with, and I'm impressed. Like I'm looking at it and I'm going, damn, like this reminds me just like this reminds me of the armor straight out of the video games that I can look at it. And I don't think it's just a cheap ripoff. Like this does seem like they're paying um, close attention to what the fans want from a halo series. And I'm not upset that we're getting uh, additional characters that aren't just master chief, because I think uh, to understand the role of the Spartan in this universe, you need to see it from an outsider's perspective. And that's kind of what we get from our uh, primary character in Quan Ha, who is played by Yaren Ha. I'm the gamer, but you less so. How do you feel approaching the series? And were you a fan of all the sci-fi action madness that you saw going down in episode one? Because it was it was very um, action heavy. Yeah, as someone who's you know done some research into the Halo lore, I was kind of the guy going in for you know the past decade, for however long this thing has been in development. I'm going like, yeah, this could be cool. Like Master Chief is an ob- like you're right, he looks cool. The lore behind it is cool. You can do some really interesting things behind it. Um, obviously having these new showrunners involved and forgetting their names, uh, Kyle Killen and Steve Kane, uh, they seem pretty passionate about it. So like, I was excited about it. I like Pablo Scriber and this is fine. Um, I will say just getting into the actual, like good things about it. I love the opening 20 minutes. Uh, all the stuff on Madrigal, uh, is fantastic. I really like the idea of this war, this particular world and Quan's family in particular, struggling for independence and going it through their point of view as the idea of, you know, the Spartans is almost like the Jedi in the prequels. Like they're distant, they'll intervene if it's necessary, but like they're not heroes to a lot of people. They're propped up as it, but they're not. Um, and, it, you know, you get into the Palpatine repercussions with Dr. Halsey as well. That's a whole other thing. There's a lot of Star Wars taken from this. Um, I, again, like I like the plotting of it. And I also have no issue with a lot of things that people have said, like, yeah, the CGI and the Covenant doesn't look great, but they're still threatening for what they need to be. And I think especially when we're shown, um, oh God, what is their home world? Um, do you know the name? I don't. The I, jellyfish world, whatever it is. The jellyfish um, world. <laughs> I mean, that's what it looks like. It um, does. When we're shown the jellyfish world and we're shown like the kind of, you know, Covenant hierarchy and they have a human in their cusp who's like kind of their prophet, so to speak, like that I think is really interesting. I'd like to, apparently that's not in the games, but like I have no issue with that. I have no issue with uh, Master Chief taking his helmet off. Like I know that's sort of the silent protagonist thing, but I like the idea, like you said, of him and Quan forming this kind of wolf and cub relationship. I think that will gather more audiences, i.e. me, who are not familiar with the game into the eyes of the characters. Uh, and I like the stuff going on with Halsey. Like, there's an interesting kind of, like you mentioned, conspiracy within a conspiracy regarding, like, yeah, the UNSC really doesn't care about the galaxy at large, but Halsey kind of does, but only when it's to her and her Spartans' benefit. Like, that, I think, is kind of an interesting concept. Uh, so, yeah, there's interesting stuff here. It's a fine pilot. Like, I'm going to keep watching this, but at the same time, it was just that thing of, okay, sure. Yeah, watching this series 
they have uh, humanity's last hope versus an invading alien species. And for anyone who has watched, you know, Falling Skies, this doesn't feel too different than that. Like what you can expect from the, the CGI enemies is going to be like Falling Skies, where no, it's not like the next blockbuster level of quality, but it's still entertaining and it gives you something um, still creative to watch um, the characters interact with on screen. Uh, but I feel like the series might have to take a dive like really, really far, far deep into the extensive lore that exists with Halo in order to really make their mark with the series that this is an individual memorable take on the Halo universe. This isn't just like a, um, you know, put these pieces together and <laughs> see if they flow out there. Uh, I think if they lean heavy into Dr. Halsey's, like she's not, I wouldn't consider her a mad scientist, but if they kind of lean into the fact that she's willing to push herself and her Spartans to lengths, other people would not go either morally um, or, or what, or what have you. That I think is going to be an interesting aspect of this series uh, regarding Master Chief taking off his helmet. I didn't like it, to be honest, but I, I was just taking the series for what it was presenting on the pilot. I'm not going to die on that hill. So uh, as long as the series keeps diving into the lore and it keeps um, delivering some heavy action sequences, then I'm impressed. And, ooh, this is like, it's pretty graphic. And, oh my gosh, it's dark. <laughs> it is pretty dark. Like, they are not, they're not afraid. You remember, you mentioned Palpatine, uh, the younglings, when they got slaughtered. <laughs> I'm just saying... <laughs> they're not they're not steering too too far from that territory here um, well, like i like i love the opening 20 minutes but like the it ends with the fa- spoiler it ends with the father getting brutally impaled like they linger on his face and Quan being the sole survivor i'm just interested in how she will develop as that survivor like will she learn to stand at master chief's side or is she going to be like a ticking time bomb waiting to disrupt w- what the spartans role is like their service to the galaxy um i like the idea that we're going to be leaning into three different dynamics which is kwan's influence of like you know think for yourself that kind of thing halsey's thing of like no your directive is like to us and your spartan family and then the weird uh artifact that they find which is like no this is just your mission like i like that kind of trifecta of conflict between master chief which i don't think we've gotten in the games and there's going to be another uh like confliction for master chief as well once we explore cortana so as as we're talking about this you know me and brandon have some familiarity around the around halo's uh video game lore so just to share with you listeners if you're watching the halo series like it won't be long before we meet cortana which is uh master chief's ai and these are like advanced ai who might as well be thought of like she's going to be uh personified like he can pretty much like she's a hologram like she can she can infiltrate physical space um she can't interact with anything much but it's like when she is talking to master chief it's like she's there with him they have a relationship that is closer than just hey you're my partner you're my computer um they're like closer than companions and so that is going to be another you know another interesting take on this series that that I wonder how they're going to do it because what's important for me is that it doesn't feel romantic because that was never the relationship between Cortana and Master Chief that I experienced. Um, So I want to see that kind of, I'm with you till the end of the line. You know, I I want to see kind of that dynamic happen here. Um, Like Star Wars, I have no problem having this distance perspective from who are like the super warriors of this universe. I have no problem with that either. And again, like if you have to bring in Quan Ha's character, I like that as a piece of giving insight into Master Chief as a whole and giving him a guiding force through the audience that isn't just him, you know, guns blazing, which I think a lot of fans would want. Like, I think that works for a narrative perspective. I also think with the Cortana thing, like I'm familiar with her as a character. I don't know a lot of the in depth around her, but I'm curious to see because we get that little, you know, 
that tease of the clone of Halsey in the pod or the AI of Halsey in the pod that might be Cortana or might not be. Like, we get that vibe. And I like the idea that Halsey is somehow going to continually manipulate him through another perspective. Like the thing of like, oh, you don't trust me. That's fine. How about this like AI person? They're completely neutral on this. There's so much lore here to ex- to explore. Please, please let this series like do that. But real quick, we know that this has been renewed for season two already, right? I was going to say, we know there's going to be at least nine episodes. I don't know if it's been expanded upon that. And then season two was just greenlit earlier this year. So we're getting more of this. It's not going to just be to end abruptly. So hopefully something comes out of this. Although I don't think nine episodes is enough, frankly. But having nine hour long episodes, that's a lot of, that's a lot of new content they're giving to us in this universe. So I'm thankful for that. If these were 30 minutes, I think I'd be, mm, it'd be easier to approach. But now that I have it, I want it for the hour. I'd be with you like nine I might go to 10 or 11, but I'm, I'm happy with this. We'll see how it turns out in the end. And that'll do it for episode 24 of Plot Devices. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to whatever again this is. Once again, uh, if you like us, if you want to follow us more, give us a follow on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on our RSS feed, at Plot Devices. It's, again, wherever your podcasts are. Go find us there. We have new episodes usually every week, including something else in the midst that we'll be talking about very, very soon. Uh, while you're at it, please follow us on Plot Devices Pod on Twitter and Instagram. That's Plot Devices Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And follow our individual stuff, including my co-host, Noah Guzman, who has a review app for X, and among other things, where can people find that and all the other things you got going on in your life? Yes, thank you so much, Brandon. I have an X review out now on the Odyssey Online. Uh, if you search up the Odyssey Online, you can find me as a creator at Marcos Noah Guzman. And if you'd like to give me a follow, I uh, talk about a lot of things, but movies are one of them on Twitter at Noah's Plotting. There's so much content for me to catch up on in uh, the movie space, but I'm actually also involved in a musical production of uh, Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. So outside of the pod, outside of my job, you know, I am uh, a stage actor for a musical and I can't wait to see how that goes because that will be uh, going down in this next month. Um, So maybe, you know, a little bit light on the news review side or I'm sorry, movie review side for me. Brandon also has a review um, out right now for Odyssey. His One of his latest reviews is the review for the Batman film. So if you haven't given that a read, um, I highly encourage it. It is an excellent review where he taps into not only um, Matt Reeves' work, but also um, draws in some notes from uh, the like works within the last decade that speak to Pattinson's character um, and the like. So definitely go check it out. That is That review is doing excellent on Odyssey, by the way. And um, we have a mini-sode out that covers all spoilers and all details surrounding the Batman that I think is worth a listen. It's a shorter conversation between ourselves um, and two guests that we invited onto the pod, and that is up now. So if you're looking for a shorter episode or if looking for more Batman talk, you can definitely check that one. Absolutely. And thank you guys so much for reading the review. It actually is really cool to see those numbers. And again, check out the mini so We have a ton of fun with that as well. You guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the movie King 45. That's Twitter and Instagram at the movie King 45. Follow my band at Cablebox underscore music on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can also, again, follow my work at ASU Odyssey, Batman, among other things. I'll have another review out this week. I'm just not sure which. Uh, follow my guest appearances at No Capes Required uh, from Sky Meredith's podcast, who is on our Batman spoiler review. If you want a good laugh, we just did a predicting the Oscars type thing. It's a little bit outdated now, but maybe you'll have fun with it as well. And once again, Block Devices Pod, Twitter, Instagram, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and RSS feed. For myself, for Noah Guzman, this has been Block Devices, and we'll catch you guys next time. Bye.